Well, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we're going to jump right in. Father, this evening we pray for your spirit to continue to use your word and to work your word into our hearts and our minds, our souls, so that we would understand what it means to be us, what it means to be image bearers of God, and specifically what it means to be redeemed image bearers. And how the truth of your word overthrows and corrects the wrong notions that this world gives regarding what it means to be human. We pray that you'd help us think well, hear well, ask good questions, and help one another ultimately know and follow King Jesus. We pray that you would exalt yourself through your word this evening that you would satisfy our souls with you and we would find the rest and the freedom, Jesus, that you promise about your truth setting us free. We know that your truth is not only for our salvation, but it's for all of life, for our sanctification. And so we pray that you would accomplish your purposes tonight. We pray, Father, in Christ's name, amen. So a couple things. If you were in last spring's class on the doctrine of scripture, you'll recall that before that class started, you actually got a syllabus with content that we were covering over the 11 weeks that we met. And it was nice and organized. And you'll notice that you have not received a syllabus for this because, um, honestly, I'm building it as we go because of the both the conversations that we have, really, you guys are the guinea pigs. And this is the first iteration of this. And the questions you, you ask, the comments that you give, the things that are going to help sharpen and refine uh, what we look at in God's Word is going to help um, mold this more for future times that it's taught. So uh, that's one of the reasons why you haven't received a syllabus. Partially also because there's a strong possibility this will extend into a part two into the spring. And so one of the difficulties is figuring out how, how uh, deep to drill down on certain issues and, and, and not. So that's kind of, um, that's that. And to let you know, though, where we are going. So I mentioned last week that we started by looking at the forest and then immediately grabbed a magnifying glass and went to the bark on the trees. And that's one of the things that we're going to be doing is we're going to be zooming out and getting a big picture, a big scriptural perspective, then zooming back in and then pulling back out and going back and forth along those lines. One of the ways that I want to help you think through the details of what we're going through is we are first looking at, and we're finishing uh, this evening, what it, what it means that we are made in the image and likeness of God. So we've been really detailing that out. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? But the upcoming sections are going to further detail that out. For example, when we finish looking this evening at what it means to be human, that is the image and likeness of God, then we're going to see that Scripture tells us that to be in the image and likeness of God includes being embodied. So we're going to focus on embodiment and what that means. Then after that section, we're going to go and we're going to look at uh, to be human or to be made in the image and likeness of God, means that we are gendered. So we're going to go from being bodied to gendered, and then we're going to be going to commissioned. 
And that will be in your notes, but just to kind of give you a little mental map of of where we're going. Um, What I want to do is we're going to wrap up this part on the image of God. So we are on the bottom of page 14. So if you don't have these notes, that's okay. They'll be up here on the screen. We'll get some more to you in in a little bit. This is going to summarize where we've been so far and then kind of push a little bit beyond it. And so before I ask if there's any questions from last time... I want to get through this summary part first, then we'll take some some questions. Make sense? All right. So let's tie this together. Bottom of page 14. You'll see it up here. You see it in your Bibles. I'm going to be in Genesis 1. If you want to join me there, that would be great. So in Genesis 1, 26, we're in this amazing section of Scripture where God is laying out the creation of Adam, of Adam, of man. And so we have in verse 26, what we've been picking apart. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so by way of tying all the details together, three big ideas to summarize what we've seen so far. Number one, or letter A, the biblical significance of that phrase in our image means that God made humans to physically represent, physically represent the triune God in the world in some way. And we'll see what that way is as the class unfolds. And that phrase in our image emphasizes the horizontal relationship of humans to the world and one another. So God did make a statue. It's us, and he put us in his temple, all of creation, and we represent him. It's one of the reasons why uh, Moses prohibits in the Ten Commandments the creation of idols for worship and more. So biblical image, when God says, let us make man in our image, he's referring to a physical representation of himself in the world, and it emphasizes, well, our rulership and the exercise of dominion over all of creation. Next, letter B, that phrase, after our likeness, unlike any other creature, including angels, including animals, there is a unique correspondence between God and humans. Humans are like God in some way, namely, we are positioned as sons. This is not to be misunderstood that humans are divine in some way, we are not. Only that God gloriously relates to Adam, man, people, as his children prior to the fall and now in Christ. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So image and likeness function together. These two terms combine. They each have a unique nuance. There's meaning overlap between the two, but they do mean different things. So image and likeness function together to describe what it is to be human. So if you've taken a philosophy class or if you've read on ontology, the, our beingness, to be human is to be in the image and likeness of God. Humans are one, defined by God, as opposed to autonomy, which means self-law, where one seeks to define oneself. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Two, we're defined in relation to God vertically and in relation to the world horizontally. 
To be human then is synonymous to be made in the image and likeness of God. And it's the proper definition of humanity. A human is not related to animals in any way or to angels, but to God. This is our ontology, the nature and definition of our being, image and likeness of the triune God. And remember the contrast. We began by thinking about what does the world say? And the world presents two big ideas. One is scientific materialism. There is no God. You're not made by anything. You're the product of a lot of time and a lot of chance and a lot of electricity and electrical impulses. There is no meaning to life. That's what a big portion of the world says. Or another version of the world is a neo-paganism or a neo-gnosticism. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Where we are really spiritual creatures. And as you hear them talking about all the time on TV shows and movies, the universe granted something or the universe did something. It's this weird quasi-melding of Hinduism and Buddhism and more that there's just kind of like a force out there that does things. And the Bible resoundingly says, no, to be human is to be in the image and likeness of God. We are creatures that God created. So that is the alternative and true definition of what it means to be human. So I'll stop there for a second. There's a little bit more to say regarding image and likeness, but any, any questions based on what I've said so far or from last time or anything that you've been thinking about? Yes, Diane. Boy, Diane. The microphone. Jesus. Jesus. Yes. Jesus is the answer. Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm not sure I understand why the physical representation, that image, ends up with emphasizing the horizontal relationship of humans. To the yeah. world. Good statement. Good question, rather. Because, again, the danger of this is they function together as one idea. And so we're breaking the one idea into parts, but they overlap in concept. So part of the sonship, the likeness piece, means that I also have the character of dad, like godliness and holiness, which then is exhibited in relationships and how I steward creation. Um, but the emphasis, the nuance in Hebrew... The nuance in the biblical use and the nuance in when Moses wrote this, how surrounding religions and cultures would have understand this terminology would also be along this, this same idea. So it's, we're kind of picking it apart, so it doesn't really make sense to put it back together, so hopefully it does make sense. Very good question. Any other good questions or bad questions? Mandy. Two mics this time. Good job. Um, so th I'm asking this more to hear your explanation, not because it's an issue I have, but um, thinking of people who come from an evolutionary mindset, um, <clears throat> what would be your answer to people who argue that we are animals because of all of the physical likenesses that we have to animals, the DNA, we're 99% chimpanzee and all of that? What would be your answer to that? Why do we see similarities in the design of creatures? I think it's because of how God designed life to work in a physical world. 
now this notion of transitional forms and all these different ideas when you start getting into the argumentation of creation versus evolution uh, you'll see that there's a lot of things read into the evolution camp that is simply not true when it terms to um well i'm not gonna go down that road but yeah that's that's a short answer which leads to theistic evolution which we didn't talk about so we're getting into new territory here this is a side note. So side note. Is theistic evolution, which is, well, God guided, he superintended the evolutionary process. Is theistic evolution an interpretive option in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 to Revelation 22? No, with an explanation point. And, and here's why. Textually, Genesis 1 and 3 are narrative. They are not poetry. Right? So, God has spoken to us. He's given us his word. He uses all manner of human communication. There are different literary genres in our Bibles. The main one is narrative. Then poetry, and poetry has different types of forms. Think Psalms or Proverbs or prophetic literature. And then we have didactic, think Romans, arguing a point. And so, so Christians who want to embrace the scientific view of evolution say, well, it's theistic evolution. Evolution is true and God is true. How can we marry that? Theistic evolution, they say. But I'm arguing here that the text of Scripture disallows that concept. So again, this first point, textually, Genesis 1-3 through is narrative, not poetry. Because to argue for theistic evolution, um, if it's poetry that Moses is writing, that means that there's a correspondence behind the text to something else. And so if a theistic evolutionist just says, poetry, kind of wave a little interpretive wand over the Bible and say it's poetry, then you can kind of make it mean whatever you want it to mean. But it's not. There's no verbal markers associated with or signaling Hebrew poetry in this section of Scripture. There is a whole lot of poetry in the Bible. We know how poetry works in God's mind in Scripture, and it's not taking place in Genesis 1 through 3 at all. And you'd have to have poetry there necessary in order to imply that the events did not literally take place so the presence of literary structure, there is exquisite and artistic design to the narrative. Undeniable. That's why it's so beautiful. But just because there's design and order doesn't mean that it's poetry. So it's not poetry. Um, so the, uh, the fact that there's repetition in the text revealed narrative mastery, not the presence of poetry. So that's the first textual argument. The next one is both textual and theological. On a theistic evolution view, you would have what, millions, billions, trillions of transitional forms prior to Adam and Eve and their fall, which would mean that death was present prior to the penalty of sin that God promised, which would make God a liar, or at least God somehow deficient in knowledge, not knowing that there was trillions of deaths before he told Adam that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that uh, he would die. So theologically, there's a problem 
um, because of the idea that death existed prior. But to get to B, you still have to hold on to A. You have to treat it as poetry or something else, not narrative. And C, the third one, and the most sure, Jesus, and all of Scripture believed in it, the literal creation account focused on a literal Adam, a bunch of Scriptures. If Jesus is mistaken about the creation account and or Adam being the first man, then he is neither Savior nor God because Scripture's Christology is that Jesus never erred, never was mistaken, and never foolish. Does that make sense? You take everything to Christ, and we take it to Christ if Jesus is wrong as the one who is truly God and truly man, then the whole Bible is wrong. We are still in our sins. We are not saved. Jesus cannot be wrong. So here we either stand on Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then go down through Genesis where he's making everything after their kinds. And we accept scripture on its literary value or we reject it at all. If you have problems with anything else, if you, have, if you have any problems with the first verse in the Bible, you should just close it. Actually, you should read the whole thing. But I'm just speaking hyperbolically. That if the first verse is true, then we have really strong confidence to, breathe, to believe everything else. So accepting theistic evolution, I argue is an example of letting scientific theory, not a scientific law, a scientific theory change scripture versus, well, vice versa. And I talked at the beginning of how right now in our cultural moment, not only do you have, um, it's, not, it's still strong, but it's not as strong as it was a couple decades ago of the battle between science and Bible, but now it's the battle between social science and the Bible. But this is a battle between science and the Bible. Questions or comments? Mandy. And I'm not going to go too deep into the evolution thing. You don't have to answer this, or you can answer it quickly. Um, What would you say to someone who tried to argue with the whole death being introduced um, as far as animals maybe being separate from humans? So is it clear in the Bible that animals did not die before the fall? And my understanding is it is. Yeah, I think so. I think so then everyone was vegan based or vegetarian until uh, then, right? the end of until Noah's flood. Fall. Yes. And then would you say that there's a distinction between bacteria and animals and bacteria are just considered like aren't considered normal part of life? Or would you say that maybe bacteria didn't die before the fall either? Because God, I think there, there wasn't was, decay. I think there was no death prior to the fall because that's how scripture paints the picture of it. And when the fall took place, the entire creation was cursed by God and upended, and then everything changed. Also, when, uh, when Noah and the family got off the boat, then things changed as well when uh, creatures began to eat each other. Yeah, good question. What about plant life? Is it... Um, no, don't, don't play devil's advocate. That's the wrong team. 
the, a, a tree could, a leaf could fall, but that's not death in the same way that a hair falls from our head. It doesn't die. So, so again, so death in the Bible, maybe we're not going to get to this tonight, I can tell, because you guys are asking good questions. Death in the Bible does not mean cessation. And we have all been convinced and taught in this world that death means that you cease to exist. Biblically false. All creatures and humans were created to live forever. Death means separation from the physical, from the immaterial. We're going to get into that when we get into being embodied. So because of that, if a tree is uh, deciduous, I wouldn't say that that's death. Um, Now, hypothetically, if Adam cut down a tree to build a log cabin for sweet Eve... Had they not fallen, I mean, I, well, I don't know what we could do with that. But so there was, so yeah, I don't think there was death before the fall. Very good questions. Last one, Craig. I'm going from um, memory, but. Um, you hold I that to your chin. Last time I made it um, feedback, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want that down. Um, isn't there a Hebrew distinction between animals and humans are like because they're both conscious and then uh, bacteria and leaves from trees are, are not conscious? Isn't there a, a Hebrew distinction between the two? I'm not aware of one a Hebrew distinction in Scripture, but I think that's an inferred um, I think, distinction. I think it's in Scripture, but I, I can find it and show, and yeah, show me it later. Good questions, everybody. So let's, that was just a brief excursus. Uh, So let's get into your notes beginning this evening. And that is page, top of page 16. So we picked apart image and likeness and we saw that God created humans vertically and horizontally to relate to him and to the world. But here's something else that we need to see. To be made in the image and likeness of God is also covenantal. It is, it is covenantal. What does that mean? Well, just by way of reminder, a divine covenant means that God is making a relationship. Think marriage as an example. A divine covenant is an oath-bound familial relationship with promised blessings and curses that's initiated by God. So familial means, like, like in marriage, you take two people who are unrelated and they become married. A new family is created. A new marriage is created. There's a familial. And that's, think back to what we talked about before. It's the second point here, B. The concept of sonship and God as Father are embedded in the divine covenants. So you can go back and look at your notes where, where I walked through the divine covenants and Israel's described as God's son. David's sons were described as God's sons. Jesus is God's son and more. This means, see, that the status and responsibilities to God and creation are inherent to being created in his image and likeness. So another way of thinking this, this means to be made by God, God, we are designed to be in relationship with God. And it's a covenant relationship, blessings and curses. And we see that where when you read through Genesis 1 and God blessed them and God blessed them, 
And then he promised a curse if Adam and Eve broke that covenant relationship, which they did. And so to be image and likeness is also covenantal. Any questions on that? Yes. Does this also have anything to do with the Son of Man title in Daniel and Jesus? You know, because he he came right with the, that sonship. Jesus had to be also the Son of Man. Is it fair absolutely there as well? Yeah, that's absolutely stands in the stream as scripture unfolds of one of the titles of christ and so paul makes a big deal of that like in romans he's both the son of god and son of david son of man those different distinctions yeah really good observation so the idea of the covenant here is not so much that god creates people image and likeness and says hey be like me to creation and relate to me but then assumes that we leave the house, so to speak, and never talk to him again. Inherent in being human is to be in a covenantal relationship with God. Again, think marriage. Oath-bound relationship. So it adds another layer and texture of dignity and value to being human, of having been created to relate to God through a covenant. And in the case the idea of covenant is newer to you, in the Bible, the only way that anyone can relate to God is through a covenant relationship. If a person is not in a covenant relationship, they have no relationship with God and cannot relate to God, which is one of the reasons why Jesus came to make the new covenant. So this section is short but very important. So we image God to the world. We relate to him as sons and daughters, as family, and that's all bound up in a covenant relationship. Any questions? Any other questions on that? Time, time out. Let me get you the microphone, brother. Okay. In, uh, in what moment starts the covenant to the man? In the moment when we receive Jesus Christ? Or in what moment? Yeah, so, so now we enter into a covenant relationship with God through repentance of our sins and belief in Jesus. And we enter in what's called the new covenant. Adam and Eve entered the covenant when God made them, gave them his word, and then they exited the covenant when they broke his word and broke that relationship which we'll look at in a few moments. But right now, for us, it's when we repent and believe in Jesus that we enter the new covenant. Very good question. Any other ones? This is good, you guys. Can't hear you, Vic. Let me get your microphone, Vic. I mean, I can hear you, brother. Well, it's being recorded. So what he's talking about, that moment... Um, when we believe, um, enters that covenant, correct? Correct, yes. So the, you can either believe or disbelieve the will, the free will. And when you believe, that's when you get the covenant. 
Um, yeah, well, in, there's, a, there's a whole host of things. There's a whole checklist of things that happen the second we're born again. One of the things that takes place when we're born again is we're brought into the new covenant. We're justified. We're brought into, we're adopted into God's family. But yeah, when we believe, we're entering into that marriage relationship as the bride of Christ. Yeah, no longer sons of wrath, by, but adopted into the sonship. Yeah, yeah. very good. And can I just say Please. something? Y'all are doing great tonight. So I'm trying to facilitate as best I can, and so far nobody's made a, a long comment. I didn't want to have to correct. So we're moving along well with time. So if you do have comments, keep in mind that there are questions. Everybody probably has a question. And so let's keep our focus on questions, and then uh, we can stay on task. We're doing really well. So thanks. Thank you, brother. So let's moving forward then. Here's what we have to think. So we, the hard part for us is we're, we're having to think about Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. We've been talking about before the fall this whole time. And now we're going to move into, now how has the fall affected what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 and partially in 3 so that we can get to the gospel, to get to the good news of the Bible? That's, that's kind of where we're going with it. So, so some of the effects of sin on the Imago Dei, image of God. The covenant relationship with God is broken. Uh, what did God do with Adam and Eve? There's a number of things he did, but what did he do with Adam and Eve after they sinned relative to the Garden of Eden? You can shout it out. Booted them. He kicked them out east. They went out east into the wilderness. Why? They could not be in God's presence anymore. Why? Because they were now sinners. Their nature had changed. And they had broken covenant. They were now rebels in his garden temple palace. And they had to be kicked out, which they were. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the covenant relationship with God is broken. Humanity now incurs curses and condemnation from God through physical and eternal death. So the consequence of the fall is now that Adam and Eve would begin to grow older, which they weren't. But now they're going to grow older. Creation is cursed. They will die. And they will also be eternally separated from God in hell. Although I think Adam and Eve are saved. So, but this is the consequence of, this, of their fall. Next... The status of sonship is lost. So image and likeness. And remember, likeness means that there was that vertical relationship with God. And again, not to think that humans are divine. We are not and never will be. But the idea was that God related to his people through covenant as his children. Sonship is lost. So we no longer bear the likeness of God positionally. As children, nor do we display his holy character. We're no longer godly. We're no longer holy. It's because of sin. Okay? Next. See, the status of physically imaging God is inverted. Our lives now preach and present a false God. So the imaging part, thinking a little bit more horizontal, 
as humans relate to humans, as humans steward creation, as they exercise dominion, which God tells them to do, as they're fruitful, multiply, and fill and subdue the earth, as they do those things, they're no longer doing it in godly, godlike ways to honor God and worship Him in doing so. They're now doing it for selfish purposes and sinful ends. So the status is of physically imaging God is inverted and they're preaching a, a false God. But does that mean then the image of God is lost entirely in the fall? And then if so, does that mean that human beings have no dignity, no worth, no value, and therefore are dis, can be discarded? The answer is not entirely. Meaning we retain the image minimally. So the status of sons is lost, again, but the role of imaging God to creation is deeply marred, but not fully eradicated. It's not fully erased. So even with sin in people's lives, God has still allowed, by his common grace, for humans to still dimly image aspects of his character and creativity. Parents, on the whole, still love their children. Relationships and marriages can still last. People can still show goodness to each other in relative ways. Um, Humanity has continued to progress and increase technology and medicine and more. So we've seen the advance of society, but all of those are still, if they're not done by faith and not done for Jesus... There's still sin. There's still sin. So, so trying to capture that balance by saying the image of God is still present in all humans. He didn't shift it to some other creature. Um, he didn't ever uh, remove it entirely, at least stated so. However, it is deeply, deeply marred. All right, any, any questions or other observations regarding the effects of sin on what it means to be human with regard to image and likeness? So, why do we need the gospel And who is Jesus? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I know it's in the notes, but you got to check your Bible to make sure I didn't pull anything sneaky on you. Romans chapter 5, and then we are going to read three verses from 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to find that and put a placeholder there. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read both these texts. So the question is, who is Jesus and why did God send Jesus? Okay, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who's he talking about? You can shout it out. Adam, yes. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given through Moses. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned 
meaning there was sin and so the penalty of sin. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's sin, trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment, following one trespass, brought condemnation. That's old Adam. But the free gift, following uh, centuries of sin, many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, it's present tense, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just pause. If you take that out of context, it sounds like universalism, that every single person is going to be saved. But he just talked a moment ago about receiving the gift. So Paul is using rhetorical devices to show the difference between the first Adam and the last Adam. He's not saying that all people will be saved. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul is going to continue the same idea. He's writing both these books. And Here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And look at this, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... So, imago Adam. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. A key argument and explanation for all of human history is between two men. Old Adam and the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And one of Paul's main arguments in the New Testament and other New Testament authors is that we need a new and true and better Adam to come do for us, really to undo for us, all that Adam did and we keep doing in our fallen father. All of humanity is divided into one of two heads. Um... Either the first Adam or the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And you are either in the image of one or the other. 
There's not a different image. There's not a third image. It's either the image of the man of dust or the image of the man of heaven, as we just read. So scripture teaches us that when Adam sinned, and this is how uh, the Bible thinks differently than we do. When Adam sinned, the entire human race was, was in him, is the logic of scripture. And so we all sinned in him and with him, and then, then through the generations, we all sin on our own as well. So all humanity is guilty of the same sins as Adam, and if we had been in Adam's position, we would have done the same thing too. So Jesus, is truly God and truly man, is the last Adam, the title that Scripture gives to him. This means that Jesus is what the first Adam should have been, and Jesus succeeded where old Adam failed. As the last Adam, Jesus also undid what the first Adam caused. Pause for a second. Because Jesus is the last Adam, that also means that he is the true image and likeness of God. And he's designated as such because he's the son and he's the son of God. He's the son of man, scripture teaches. So Jesus, when you read through the gospel accounts, do a couple laps through them, just viewing him as the last Adam. And just keep Genesis 1 through 3 in your mind and then read the Gospels and see the contrast between the two and that Jesus is doing what Adam did. Or rather, what Adam should have done. After Jesus was baptized, where did the Holy Spirit drive him? Yeah, in the wilderness, in the desert. To what end? Temptation by whom? Yeah, right? So just as Satan crept into the garden in Genesis 3 and then lured and enticed Eve and then Adam and then Adam plunged us all into sin, mischief, mayhem, and ruin. And they were exiled. Then you have Israel going through the waters of the Red Sea. And then where do they go for 40 years? In wilderness, yeah. Getting bit by snakes and rebelling against God the entire time. That whole, God's not pleased with that whole entire generation. Uh, Jesus goes through water. He's baptized. It's my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's taken into wilderness by the Holy Spirit for how long? 40, 40 years, 40 days. Tempted by Satan. Adam and Eve were. Satan was tempting Israel. And what is, does Jesus give into the temptations of Satan? No, he does not. He conquers Satan. So he does what Adam should have done but didn't because only Jesus can. God's plan all along from before creation has been the gospel and has been God becoming uh, man in the person of his son to live among us. So here's some things that Jesus did that Adam did not do. Jesus was perfectly loving, submissive, and worshipful in his obedience to the Father as his Son. Spoiler alert, we're going to see in John 14, 31, one of the most magnificent texts in all of Scripture, 
where Jesus gives this glimpse. We, we, we hear all of scripture about God's love for us and our reciprocal love for God. Praise God for that. But in John 14, 31, Jesus is, says he's going to the cross to show the world his love for the Father. Adam was not perfectly loving, submissive, worshipful, or obedient to the Father. Jesus took the curse of creation upon his head with the crown of thorns. So in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fall, and then God curses the snake, curses Satan, and he brings his punishment to Eve and then to Adam, what does he tell Adam about the ground? Yeah, thorns and thistles. So the thorns and thistles, those thorns have become emblematic of what's wrong with the world. That's why Romans 8 says all of creation groans uh, because it's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. So when Jesus, when those terrible soldiers put the crown of thorns on his head, mocking him, thinking that he wasn't king, and they were just trying to hurt him, they didn't realize that they were taking the last Adam and taking the curse that Adam created and putting it on his head to bleed on his brow for us as he hung on the cross. He took the curse of creation upon his head with the crown of thorns. He defeated death, although death still waits its final and full defeat to come when he rose from the grave. He defanged the devil, while the devil thought that the cross was a military victory to take over the world, so to speak. He didn't know that 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 very cross was the dagger in his own skull. Uh, The last Adam, Jesus, he provides reconciliation and restoration between humanity and God. And I didn't put there, and humanity and humanity. A byproduct of being reconciled first to God is secondarily being reconciled to one another. That's Ephesians 2. Good text to look up. And lastly, with the first Adam, God makes creation. He makes Adam Adam plunges it into ruin and the curse. When Jesus rose from the grave, he rose as the new creation. So if you can picture the promised future age of the new heavens and new earth, it's actually already begun and overlaps ever since Jesus rose from the grave, which is why scripture says, you can look at those texts, that anyone who is in Christ is a what? New creation. That's just not poetic language. We, that's why we we're also in the in-between, because we are new creation and yet have remaining sin, and our physical selves and our immaterial selves, body and soul, still suffer the effects of the fall, even though we are born again in new creation. There's an overlap. So the gospel, then, is about a transfer of lineage and ancestry from old Adam to the new Adam, Jesus. Those who repent and renounce of their sins and their rebellion against God, remember autonomy, receive the free gift of gracious salvation in Jesus Christ. So you have the image and likeness of God in the garden. It's parts of it are lost. It's marred because of sin and the fall. And yet, Jesus... Jesus has come to save us, but that's not all. You got a little hint there in that last verse in 1 Corinthians 15, but look down at Romans 8. 
Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. uh, Here it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is God up to in the gospel? All of us talk about old Adam and the new Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, and image of God and likeness. We read right here in Romans 8, 29, that the, um, the purpose of your life, the ultimate purpose that, that grounds everything, all the 10 million things that God is doing elsewhere, God has the singular purpose for this in your life. He is, in this moment, conforming you into the image of Jesus. So what is God up to in the gospel? We've already seen justification, the big Bible word. Here's some helpful ways to think about, to define this. Because Jesus lived in our place as the last Adam, died in our place as the last Adam, buried for three days, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, poured out his spirit, has given us his Bible. What is he doing? Well, the first thing, when we repent of our sins and believe in him, we're justified. So what does that what does that big Bible word mean? Think of it this way: it's just if I'd never sinned, meaning from God's the trying God's divine eternal perspective in the cosmic courtroom of justice on that last day when He raises the gavel to say guilty or acquitted innocent, because we are in Jesus, transferred from old Adam to last Adam, we can say. God will say, the Father will say, son, daughter, it's just if you'd never sinned because you believe Jesus and you follow him. But that's not all. That's only half of it. The other half is this. It's also just if I'd lived Jesus's life. So what God does in the gospel is he takes all of our badness and puts it on Jesus on the cross And all of his goodness and puts us on us forever. So when the father looks at us, he sees us justified, lived Jesus's life. So go back and read through the gospels and everything that you see Jesus doing. He is like a cloak and shelter in the storm of God's wrath. And now he is the source of God's happiness in your life. And God sees us as if we lived his life. So we're no longer positioned in the old Adam. We're no longer guilty of old Adam's sin. And we're not guilty of our own sin. We are positioned in Jesus. And um, credited or given. Or the old school Bible word. Or theological term. Imputed. With all of Christ's righteousness. The last Adam's righteousness. We're no longer guilty. We're no longer dirty. We are innocent and clean in Christ. And in this sense, we no longer bear the image of the fallen Adam. We're no longer bearing the image of the man of dust. 
that we read of just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 15, we now bear the image of the man of heaven. This is our position. So what God the Father has done in Jesus is taking you from the old Adam and placed you in the new Adam. Any questions on the two Adams and justification before we move on? Hannah. Which one? Which Hannah? H-dub. Oh, I like that. Um, it says in uh, justification, it says we're no longer positioned in the old Adam and guilty of his sin and our own. Can you explain what that means, like guilty of his sin? Yeah, it was what I was saying a little bit earlier. The, the Bible's logic um, that we were all in Adam's loins, to use Bible language. Like all of humanity was in him. Uh, think So the exact opposite of our culture where youth is exalted and old age is scorned, that's not how the, old, the world works, is it? Older brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen is right. So in the Bible, age, age comes with authority and responsibility and, and reverence. So Abraham is greater than Isaac and Jacob and so on. So Adam is our great fallen father and all of humanity was in him. And so go home and nestle up with the book of Hebrews for a little bit and you'll see some of this talked about in there. Just this idea, uh, there's an argument made about, um, yeah. Melchizedek giving an offering to Abraham. That's not really going to clear this up. All of humanity is, is, is in Adam. And the Bible just, he's the head of the human race. And what he did, we did in him. So, the, so that's, that's not fair. Fine. But neither is it fair that Jesus did all that for us. And God now transfers us into him. So it's actually really good news. That. I was asking just to clarify like, and, and make the contrast between that and us being guilty of all of our ancestors' sins. So not just Adam, but, oh, I should be guilty of my three nope. generations ago sins. Right? Uh-uh. So. No, no, no. Uh-uh. No, not in the new covenant. No, so it's just Adam and our own sin. Adam and our own sin, uh, not your parents, and more. Okay, what is God up to in the gospel? He's what? also up to sanctification. One more question. Oh, yes, Sorry, yes. Dude. Yeah, Gary. Um, so understanding justification, um, meaning that it's just as if we live Christ's life, his full righteousness is imputed to us, does that in any way mean that we are credited with Jesus' righteousness in the way that he died for the sins of the world? Is that righteousness? Uh, imputed to us as well with that logic? Um, nuance that a little bit more because only he... Are you, are, you, are you asking if can we die for other people? Uh, sorry, I, just to clarify. Um, if we have Jesus, if full righteousness imputed to us, does that mean we have... God sees our righteousness, the same righteousness as his son, the righteousness that died for the sins of the world. Yes. Yeah, all, all, all of Christ is applied to us. And so when God sees us in Christ, his perfections 
are credit to us, and God is happy with us in, in his son? Very good question. So the key thing to notice here before we move on is that the doctrine of justification, a word that the Bible uses a ton, is tied to old Adam and last Adam. And we, we shouldn't understand that word separate from them and the work that Jesus, Jesus did. But God is up to more. And this is, this is kind of what we saw a moment ago in Romans 8.29 here. Conformed to the image of his son. God is also up to sanctification. Another big Bible word. And sanctification, you can think of it as Jesusification or saintification. If you have a Roman Catholic background and you think that only saints are dead people who did miracles post-mortem, which is not true, the Bible views calls all Christians saints. It's just a word for holy ones. Why? Because we're justified in Christ. So all Christians are saints. So sanctification, what in the world does that mean? Think Jesusification or saintification. What that means is God is changing us. So practically, we have remaining sin in our lives every day until we're glorified. And so by the Holy Spirit, working through the word and prayer, we are increasingly, and here's that, here's that phrase from Romans 8, 29, what is God up to in us? Not just justification, but also sanctification. We are increasingly being conformed to the image of his Son. It's, the Greek there is morphed into the icon of Jesus. So, so, so God is taking us, and here's, what, here's what's so cool about this language. Someone remind us how God made old Adam. What did he do? Dust. dust. He forms Adam with the dust and makes him, and then he breathes the breath of life into him, and he became a living creature. So here, this idea of conform to the image of son is that, that the, the father actively has his hands on your life, loving and shaping us to be more like Jesus, the last Adam. That's what he's up to. And the beauty of this Romans 8.28 passage is that we live in this fallen, broken, sinful world, remaining sin in us, lots of sin outside of us, no perfect knowledge, lots of folly, lots of broken relationships, lots of problems, and more. And God, for his children, Romans 8.28, top of the page there, is that God works all things for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he's not doing that for unbelievers. He's doing it for his children. But the highest good, what, what is that good? The good is verse 29. The good that God is working in verse 28 is making us into the image of Jesus. His character, his likeness, his gloriousness, his graciousness, his goodness, his perfection. I even put the Greek in there for you so you could just look at it and wonder what it says. <laughs> One of you could even get it tattooed on your forearm. Probably over in this section a little bit more than anybody else. The old Adam is being de-imaged out of us. So I use the word positional 
right there for justification. So justification is your position in Christ. It cannot change. It will never change. You can't make yourself more justified or less justified. You are completely, perfectly justified in Jesus. That's our position. But then you got up this morning and you started to live your life and gave many proofs for why you're not completely justified. So there's our position, but then there's our practice. And what God is doing is not, it's not a linear, perfect line. It's, it's a couple steps forward, a couple steps back and up and down and all around. We're being conformed into the image of his son. So that's why I say there at the bottom of this paragraph, the old Adam is being de-imaged out of us. Remember our time together in Ephesians uh, 4, to put off your old self and put on the new self created in Christ Jesus, put on Jesus. Putting off the old self is de-imaging. Really, you should deconstruct the old Adam and get rid of him and put on Jesus. The old Adam is being de-imaged out of us and the image of the last Adam is progressively, not a political statement, being imaged in us. We're being conformed more and more. So God is using every aspect, facet, moment of our lives to this very end that we might increasingly image Christ. The image that was deeply marred and ruined by the fall is now being restored in Christians. And here's the, this is amazing. God is not restoring us back to the image of old father fallen Adam. He is restoring us to brother Jesus, the glorious one. So we're being made into a better image because Jesus is infinitely better than old Adam, even in his pre-fall state. So the image that was marred, we're not just getting repaired. We're not getting renovated. We're being made, we're, we're renewed. We're new creation. So the status of physically imaging is being restored through sanctification. So the Christian can now truly image God. We bear likeness, and we can image him by the fruit of the Spirit and more. Imperfectly, but we still can do it. And then glory. Look at, again, the end of, this is the end of verse 29. It says, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think about the logic of this text. Uh, life is hard and horrible, and God is taking all the hard and horrible things, and he's working it for good. And that good is to um, form us like old Adam, but with the new clay in Jesus, form us into the image of Jesus. And then that's, there's not a period there. That's not where the sentence ends. The sentence keeps going. There's more. And the more is, well, I'm getting, we're getting made into the image of Jesus. Praise God. We can go home, big smile on our faces, but there's even more in order that, why are you being made into the image of Jesus? It's in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, our God-wrought ongoing transformation into the image of Christ is for the fame and glory of Jesus' name. So we get the greatest good you could possibly get in all the universe being made into the image of Jesus, while at the exact same time, Jesus gets the greatest glory because it's his joy. Remember Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. 
sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Well, it's because he wants to adopt us into the family of God with God as our father. So Jesus' glory is tied to him getting many brothers. And those are all of us that he saves. So he'd be the firstborn among, he's the eldest brother. And that means that the status of sonship that was lost in old Adam is regained forever through our brotherhood to Christ. So God's work in the gospel is not merely returning and restoring the image and likeness ruined in the Garden of Eden, but gracing us and blessing us to the image of the greater son regained and expanded in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not about the Garden of Eden, it's about Gethsemane. Questions or comments about the gospel work of the last Adam? Do any of you think this is good news? Yeah, I want to get saved again. Good thing we only get saved once and you can't lose it. Jeff. Dave, a question I had is, this is a lot of new covenant language. Um, the image of Christ, so on and so forth, old Adam, new Adam. Can you put a little bit of an Old Testament spin on that for Old Testament saints? Is that is that going to take you too far off course in terms of um, what God is doing in an Old Testament safe life, life, saints' life, in terms of justification or sanctification? Yeah, that's getting into like how Old Testament saints were saved. And... Um, Wait for the Sunday message on the Holy Spirit. So you have to come to church on Sunday. (laughs) And then I'll partially answer um, Jeff's question. So undoubtedly, there were believers in the Old Testament era. uh, Adam, Noah, Abraham. You have the two lineages. Um, But my understanding is that they were awaiting being conformed into the image of of Jesus until Jesus came. Now, they were they were saved, um, and come to church on Sunday. Okay, next question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. It's just that's a that's a string that's just long to pull. So just a reclarification on Gary's earlier question. So, I think. I just asked him. Sorry to be rude and talk while you were teaching. but um, So I think his question was, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong. I think his question was, because Christ's righteousness is accredited unto us, are we also accredited with his death on the cross as if we actually died on the cross? Oh. Is that what you were asking? Yes, because we died with him. But the argument in Romans is we died with him in our baptism. That's why believers get baptized, because we identify with the death and then resurrection of Jesus Christ in our baptism. So it's an identification, but we, we um, don't perform what he did. He was the once-for-all sacrifice. Yeah, very good question, Gary. Thanks. Thanks for clarifying that, Bo. Hi. Um, so we've been talking about justification and sanctification. 
Um, what about in the case where it seems as if someone truly was justified and there was evidence of sanctification in their lives, but then all of a sudden there's this huge left turn in their lives? Um, case in point, Joshua Harris. How do we deal with that? And do we ask the question, were they ever saved to begin with? Are they still saved? Um, how do we deal with things like that? Good question, Sam. So read the Bible. Okay, read it. The Bible summarizes that there are a class of people that could be identified as prodigals. So they are still children of the father, but they go prodigal for a season. And they always come back because they've never lost their sonship. First John talks about those who were of us, but then they went out from us because they were never of us. So that would speak of a false convert. You can think of Jesus' parable of the soils too. We probably should spend more time thinking about that. You have these different seeds that go into different soils and they all sprout, but they all die because they were not, they were not real. They didn't take root is the way Jesus explains it. Except for the ones who did take root, they actually are alive and they bear all the fruit. The other ones died because, well, they didn't live. It's, he's using an analogy. So what we have to do with Joshua Harris is only the Lord knows. And we need to pray for his salvation. We need to pray for his repentance, if he's prodigal or not. Um, and uh, we, we can identify also come to church on Sunday. So Jesus is going to say on Sunday that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And those who don't love me don't keep my commandments. It's really simple. So we actually can look at objective fruit in a person's life. And that also is another metric to know, like how obedient are they willing? If they're confronted with God's word and they're unwilling to obey, then um, if that person was, so Joshua Harris was to come to me, we could not give him any confidence. Well, he doesn't think he's not a Christian anyways. He doesn't claim to be one. But for him to say that would mean that um, if he were to die, we would have to give him a non-Christian funeral. And so that's one of the things with the fruit in people's lives. Do you have confidence they were saved or not? I mean, you have Pharisees who really look like they were saved and they weren't. They were whitewashed tombs. And you've got prodigals. So it's patience, prayer. And right now he's saying he's an unbeliever. So we treat him as such. Good question. Mandy. And then Anita. Um, doesn't the verses about perseverance of the saints have to do with that? Like my, my kind of understanding is if you are truly saved, it will be proved by your perseverance, by your eventual perseverance in the faith. Like your, it, like at the end of your life, a person could look back and say, okay, he came back to faithfulness kind of thing that, that there's some aspect of that perseverance that they, they always come kind of come back if they are true Converts something. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence with great glory. To the, so so um, sanctification is ups and downs and, and sidesteps and there's prodigals and those things. But, but really it's at when we are in heaven, then we will know. And so right now we just have fruit to go off of and obedience and things like that. Um, Some states give their kids a funeral. 
Ananias and Sapphira, were they saved? No, I don't think so. Okay. But it, well, but maybe. What I'm, what I'm uh, saying is... It, I don't think so. I think it's unknown necessarily that you're going to have time to prove later that you are or aren't. You know, yeah, part of the... So the, and that's where... So just on the doctrine of perseverance, it is the doctrine of perseverance we tend to treat autonomously. We always forget the church and the necessity of faithful membership, the need for brothers and sisters of Christ outside your own biological family to walk alongside you to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So part of our perseverance is proven uh, through enduring suffering, persevering through suffering and persecution, persevering in the things of God, or repenting every sins and coming back. So, uh, But at the end of the day, we just only God knows. There, there are... Sunday's going to come, and it is almost certain that there are multiple false converts, maybe even in our own membership. And we just don't, we don't know it yet. And maybe time will tell, and we'll see them fall away, or maybe on the last day we'll be surprised. Yeah. Um, but I keep going. Anita, nothing, nothing? Just keep going. Okay. Summary and significance, bottom of 18, of humanity being created by God in his image and likeness. Okay, pause for a second. I told you at the beginning, we're getting super detailed, right? So the upcoming segments are going to be, um, remember the fancy philosophical word, ontologically? What does it mean to be you? It means your image and likeness of God. You're not an animal and you are not a spirit being. You are the image and likeness of God. We're going to move into embodiment, being gendered, being ethnic, and more. Um, But here we're thinking specifically just the beingness of being human. What does this mean? Okay, this means we are defined by God, our creator. Which the opposite... Letter B here at the top of 19. We do not self-define or self-govern. There's that word autonomy again. The word that hangs over our age increasingly is autonomy. And then, remember, you break it apart, autonomy, it's self-law. The contrast would be, um, I would say, Christonomy, Christ's law. So so we don't self-define or self-govern. We are not defined by our sexuality. We are not defined by our skin color. We are not defined by what we do in this world. We are not defined by anything else that fallen humans can contrive and thereby divide each other. God has not given humans, given us the right or the authority, or the freedom, or the ability to identify as anything other than the image and likeness of God. Any attempt to self-define is a fiction and charade, and an errand for a ruined life in this world and the next. Pointed. Trying to be pointed. This, really, this reality obliterates modern social media efforts 
to indoctrinate us that it is good, right, and to be celebrated that we self-define. Be what you want. Be all that you can be. And all the other things that, that we read, right? For someone to be their authentic self means that they need to take what they feel on the inside. And unless they live out what they feel on the inside, they're living an inauthentic, subhuman life. That is the exact opposite of what Scripture says. God defines what we are. You can't improve on God's definition. Now, we're going to get into this more later, multiple times. But right now, as it stands, talking about who defines humanity. And here we're seeing that we are not given that authority and right. Questions, comments, incendiary... No, don't make any incendiary remarks. Trying to connect the, the logic of Scripture there. So God makes us human. So in the first class, when we're talking about the, um, what are they called? The other kins who identify as dragons, lions, and a red fox. Not, what was it? Furries. Furries. Uh, and more, so the, the, um, the intent is, is not to, to mock, as strange as that sounds. Um, the intent is to say that we're going to see that one thing that sin does is that sin disorders our desires. So we should not trust our desires or give in to our desires insofar as they contradict God's word. And if someone gives in to thinking that they're a dragon, um, they may find some measure of peace or itching a scratch they couldn't scratch, but it will ruin their life. You cannot improve upon God and God's ways. Um, so, so, so that's that's, and then and then so sexuality. So you can insert LGBTQ plus, or even heterosexuals meaning that that becomes your identity it's not skin color is not our identity what we do is not again i'm just repeating that same thing it's it's our identity is what god says and that is he makes us and says you are my image and you are my likeness that is broken and marred and needs to be restored to the man from heaven jesus christ that's, that's the gospel. And so one of the things that we have as followers of Christ, as imperfect as we are, is we have this truth that is everywhere in uh, uh, the world, especially on the devices of our kids and younger. I mean, you just generationally go down and the more um, imperious, the more um, penetrating these ideas are where... It's an overwhelming, and then not to mention just cancel culture, pressure to conform, and more to, to ag agree that you can self-define, and God says that you can't. He says that you can't. We'll talk about this more as we get into gender. Yes, brother.
I think that more than a social or a fresh problem, those people have a spiritual, strong and deep problem, yes? Yes. Because they are against against the, the Lord's war, and that is terrible, definitely. The, the society thinks that they have a social problem, but definitely that is a spiritual problem more than everything. And deep spiritual problem. It is a deep spiritual problem. So the bottom line with the fall is that every single part of every single human being outside of Christ is deformed. So that that's that's bad news. But we we tend not to think that way. We think that some parts are affected by sin but not others, but but every single aspect of being a whole person is infected by sin and the fall. So everything ultimately is first a spiritual problem, which is a worship problem of not worshiping the Lord, but worshiping self in this case. Good, good comment. Let's move forward. So what we're looking at here is, what's the significance of this? Why does this matter? Letter C. Men and women equally bear the image and likeness of God in themselves as individuals. Neither men nor women bear the image more or less than the other, nor is the image and likeness of God located in the union of marriage as if man and woman each bring 50% of the image together and then there's the image of God. So there's confusion there. That's that... that um, as a Christian, we each, in our own, fully bear the image of God. So that's, that's an implication of this, and um, probably would touch on that more. Any questions or comments on that, about the image of God? Image and likeness is not a matter of capacity or ability. For example, one's intellect, stage of development, age, gender, ethnicity, etc., does not determine if one bears the image, the imago dei, or not, or how much of it you bear. I should have added that. All human beings bear the imago dei because God made them so and designated them as such. From the newly fertilized egg, to the aged in the hospice care, to those with Down syndrome, or any other so-called abnormality, all equally bear the image of God. When you locate, and this is what our world does, our world, think Nazis, and our world present, locates a person's worth and value in their utility for society, or what they can get out of you. God places worth and value in all humans because they're made in the image of God. So this has, um, this has implications So from the newly fertilized egg. This is why Christians believe that abortion is murder and is not a health right. The only health right in abortion is the survival of the baby. And that is because 
from conception, and I'll show this to you in a little bit from Psalm 139, that God superintends our creation. So at the moment of conception, that is an image bearer of God, even though there's not a heartbeat yet. That, that's why this is a big deal. And that's why it is murder. And the same thing with Down syndrome or what our, what our world does is let, let's put old people in hospice and let's put young people in the grave and harvest their organs. No value of life, right? It, it is, it is it's a version of Nazi Germany. And so the image and likeness means that it's rooted in our being. If it was rooted in capacity and ability, that would mean that some of you are more the image of God than others and therefore are superior to others. But the image of God creates a level playing field, as it were. Comments or questions on capacity and ability not being the definition of image and likeness. Yeah, it would definitely turn into idolatry. Yeah, Bill, it's good. Anita. So my question would be like in preaching in John and about like the blind man and Jesus bringing the kingdom and healing them. Is is that taking away effects of sin and removing that disability? And if so, then... I'm just trying to reconcile that in my head. Like, okay, having a disability would be a result of the fall. And, but is it marred image? I don't believe it is, but I can't reconcile it. So first with disabilities, um, you have to distinguish between the effects of the curse on creation so we'll get into this when we talk about being embodied. Um, my roommate in college was colorblind. That's an effect of the fall. Um, so any anything physical that we have that um, deviates from the norm, so to speak, are effects of the fall. That also applies to mental problems and more. So that's not a result of sin. It's just we live in a fallen world, fallen bodies. That's what's going on. Um, it does seem there are other times that God does, can use some type of infliction to deform somebody as a form of discipline in their life for their good to shape them into the image of Christ. But more often than not, we're thinking about the birth of somebody. It's not a sin issue. Now, um, if we think about that in reverse, there will be no deformity in heaven. And when we are in glory, um, we, we will be perfectly embodied with physical bodies in glory and uh, better than we expect. So then the question is, if someone is deformed, uh, say physically, are they sub-imaging God? I don't think so. Because it's what we are. If the image of God was rooted in capacity or ability, they would be. But it's first and foremost just 
the definition of humanity? It's a very good question. Yeah, go ahead. So I would just follow that with, is there a distinction then between sin that is committed and sin that just exists? Like, so the creation fell. Is there a distinction between the creation fall and the sin that is committed? Does that make sense? I don't, uh, well, let me, let me take a shot at an answer to see if it's your question. So Romans 8 says that creation was subjected to futility, not willing, frustration, not willingly. So create, so, so only human beings are guilty of sin. And then you got Satan and demons, but only human beings are guilty of sin and, uh, rocks, rainbows, and, and rainbow fish aren't. So our sin ruined quasars and, and more, but they're not, they're not sinning. So, uh, being born with a shorter limb is not, it is not because of, it's because of Adam's sin, but it's just a curse on creation. I don't know if that, if that helps a little bit. Good questions, Anita. Anything else? Keep moving. Yes, Alexis. So just to make sure I'm understanding, you're saying that all humans bear the image of God. We're all made in God's image. That's not just believers are you saying that unbelievers are made in god's image as well but they just refuse to acknowledge it so so good very good question alexis so first corinthians 15 that we just read there's actually two images in the world right now those who bear the image of the first adam and those who bear the the man of dust and those who bear the image of the man of heaven so there's actually two competing images right now until christ brings us all home and so, and so, and the, and the image of the man of dust is all that they. So, I didn't hammer it enough. I should have. the The centerpiece of the gospel is our adoption, and and God as Father. So, what Adam lost in the fall, sonship, we regain in Jesus. Adoptions as daughters and sons. So, everybody who bears the image of the man of dust, 1 Corinthians 15, is not, God is not their father. They are in rebellion to him. And they have the marred image faintly by virtue of that original creation, but they don't bear the image of Christ. That's a really good question. Fine distinctions. Dave, follow up on that one. Yes. Because you said from an embryo, from a, you're, you have the image of God. And so what you just said, I could hear that as contradictory to that. Hmm. Confusion in the marred image. Yeah, okay. So the image is retained, but deeply marred. So that's why I said earlier that God, when Adam fell, God didn't take his image and place it on the archangel Gabriel. He didn't place it on monkeys. Human beings still, that I was trying to argue about common grace, where we still have seen society advance. Mothers still love their children, mostly. There's, there's, there's sin, but you still see um, 
echoes, vestiges, remnants of the original creation in humans because we are created moral creatures, inescapably. And so we can still do good to each other on a horizontal level, but it's still sin on a vertical level. So, so regardless, God never revoked the dignity and value of human beings in the fall. I'll just, I'll say that. Um, but it's deeply marred and those image bearers that's broken and marred will be judged eternally if they don't repent and turn to Jesus Christ. So that allows us then, with being an image bearer from conception, um, we can get into a whole theology of children there too, but we won't for the sake of time. Um, yeah, hopefully that, is that muddy the well, waters? A, I guess for me, one of the reasons we need to have compassion on everybody, saved or not saved, is because I see them all as image bearers of God. And and they all may, may have the capacity to become justified, saved later, whereas an animal does not, right? Mm-hmm. And as you said, God, it's up to God whether Joshua Harris is saved or not. He's still an image bearer. Mm-hmm. But um, in in his humanity, that he has a, a, a spirit like no animal does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's acting as he's, his current state is acting as if he's a son of dust, as you would say, as you said, right? And that, that he's not fully, in the, you know, he's not saved. Is that, I mean, would you agree with everything I just said or not? I, I would agree with that, and I would locate, I would not locate our um, our love and kindness to others because, primarily because they retain some of the image of God through Adam. I would locate the reason that we love people based on Christ's command to um, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Matthew 28 commission to go preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Um, So out of obedience to... I think you have a stronger and safer and clearer argument for the love of all humanity based on those than these... We're getting the really fine-tuning image of Godness there. But I I would agree with that, um, what you said. Sam. So for Adam had the image of God because he was formed in God's image at creation, right? But like you quoted, you said the psalm earlier where David says, like God knitted me in my mother's womb, right? So would we have the image of God as humanity in that we are created by God individually as well? Yeah, I think that you could you could add that to what you were saying, Jeff, as well. Given the fact that God creates all people based on that, so um, He's creating a a person who is going to be born and then is going to sin and is going to need redemption, and um, a person who's born guilty of the sin of Adam and guilty of their own sin. And, and yet retains the image of God. It's, it's marred but not entirely lost. 
but the key thing now is so we haven't even talked about ephesians 2 and and how um well think about how in the gospels jesus says to the pharisees your father is the devil right so what you have in ephesians 3 or in genesis 3 when god curses satan and then gives the first promise of the gospel in genesis 3 15 is he divides all of humanity into one of two seeds or one of two lineages the, those descended from the woman, which is the godly line, and those descended from Satan. And it's actually not a physiological descent. It's a spiritual descent because Cain killed Abel. So, so I think these are all really good questions. And the goal would, the goal would be to, to recognize that 1 Corinthians 15 said it's either the image of the man of the dust or image of the man of heaven. There's two images right now going around, and we're commanded to love all people and and more so making sure that we're not locating a person's dignity and value um they they still bear the image of of god pastor andy so yep we need to keep clarifying this um first corinthians 15 47 through 49 in the image of one but that would have to be in some sense spiritually and yet every person who is born ever, with the exception of Jesus, is born with a sinful nature because of Adam. Yet they are also born in the image and likeness of God. Thus, we defend our position against abortion and euthanasia because they have value. They're made in the image of God. So is there a distinction there between in one sense a physical, in one sense a spiritual, and I'm not trying to bifurcate or divide the two worlds, but but there is something going on here that we have to recognize. Yeah, so well said, brother. The, the, the way that, just to repeat what Pastor Andy said, is you have uh, God making Adam in his image, and then we're all born in uh, Adam's image. And so... Um, the the text that I was reading, so maybe this is a this is a, an important nuance to make. Thank you for bringing this out. In Romans, and the the argument here is being moved from Adam, the image of Adam, to the image of Jesus. That that would be the that would be the distinction. So we still bear the image of God. It's marred but not lost. Dignity and values remain, but people are not saved until they are brought into the image of Christ, in whose image we're being made. Really good. Clear? So we got several more questions. Uh, we're at 8.15 time-wise. Just want to give you a time check, Dave. But we have about four more questions that I can see. Let me, let me um, save your questions. We're almost done with this, and then, I want, and then we'll just do questions, and we won't go any further than this. Um, there's actually these last three right here. Despite sin and rebellion, humans retain inherent dignity and value due to the vestiges of the Mago Dei that remain. The conversation we just had. Uh, we haven't talked about this, but the creation mandate is not revoked in the fall, which is, we'll talk about that later, but the creation mandate um, is procreation and vocation, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion. That's still operative. And then um, the most important thing is every human being desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ to be right with God and live right in this world 
as new and true image bearers of Christ. We will talk about being embodied next time. Okay, we'll just close our time the last 10 minutes or so with questions. Did Jovi have a question? So questions, anyone? I saw some hands over here, over there. Okay, I'm closer here. I'll go over here. So um, in regards to abortion, like every child is, every person is made in the image of God. And so would that child um, go to heaven and, and like until their relationship is fully, um, like they believe in Christ? Like how, what's the determinant on how you know if they're going to heaven or not um, in that matter? I think the answer is yes. I think that when, when children die, they do go to heaven. And the, the reason is, um, there's, a, there's a couple different ways to get there. One of them, when King David sinned with Bathsheba, I'm not sure if you know that story, but David sins with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, and then um, she gets sick, the child, the child gets sick, and the child dies, and David's fasting and praying. And if you remember what David said after the child died, is that he will not come to me, but I will go to him. And in the Old Testament world, uh, before Jesus came, when someone died, Scripture always spoke of, a, of um, people going down into the grave, into Sheol is, is what it was called. And then later when you get to the prophets, it gets a really bad connotation, Sheol does, in the sense that that's the place of punishment for the wicked. Jesus comes on the scene and he tells a, a true story, I don't think it's a parable, of Sheol, of having two places, a place of punishment and a place of comfort. And so when David says, his child's going to die and I'm going to go down to him, but he won't come to me, and, and David was a believer, he was saved, David knew that he was going to go to his child, which I take the only place he'd see him is in the place of comfort. And so that when Jesus went into the grave and rose three days later, he brought the dead with him and they went up. Um, that's when everybody entered into heaven, except for Elijah and Enoch. Don't know what to do with those guys. So, so you, have, you have that. That's like a text I would point to. Then you look at the general attitude that Jesus had. Jesus loved children. And he got angry with the disciples when they prevented kids from coming to him. A third argument would be the character of God. Um, and so I think that we're going to be surprised at how full heaven is based on children who have died who've got, who've gotten to heaven. When, when, um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. You'll hear people talk about an age of accountability. There's no such thing in the Bible. Um, there's something that was specific that demarcated the difference between those who entered the promised land and didn't, but that wasn't, so we don't know, but we know that God is just and fair. It's a very good question. My, my question was, what, what do you have to say about, like, these things being normalized in society today? Like, just looked on as upon, like, as good almost. And the Bible clearly says they are not good. And these people are trying to normalize it. And what, what do you think we should kind of, what way should we look at that and maneuver around it and look at a better position? That's a, that's a good question. Um, we should be... Uh, 
very sad and dismayed at how uh, Satan and satanic ideologies are capturing the minds of people, especially younger people, and um, that they're believing these lies. We should be very sad. We should be very angry about that and not passive, and we should be courageous in speaking the truth in love. And speaking the truth in love will look different to different people that you're talking to, um, but we we need to do what we can in our own spheres of influence to proclaim the life-giving, liberating truth of Jesus Christ. And all the things that the trans the transgendered person, uh, the guy who's sleeping around, the I mean whatever whatever it is that that people are are they're, they're tr- they are looking for Christ substitutes. So we we have the answer that they need. Um, and so if Paul could take, or if Jesus can take someone like the Apostle Paul who was murdering Christians, stealing from them and putting them in prison and save that guy, then he could save people who adamantly wave the flag for whatever color they're waving. So um, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is very helpful because there's these battle lines in our culture that are so strong, it's really easy to treat these, these people. So even that phraseology, right? To treat people who hold to these ideologies, ideologies as the enemy and then to be the Pharisee who goes on the other side of the street. But we need to be armed with the gospel. And I think the church needs to be uniquely ready, uh, not just now but in the next decade and longer, of all of people who have transitioned and then they get saved by Jesus. Who's going to preach the gospel to them and then how are we going to help them? So... So I'm saying, I'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth, but I'm saying that there's got to be um, uh, biblical compassion of loving our neighbors ourself, persecuting enemies with good, while also being firm and courageous and telling the truth and, and, and not um, capitulating to the fictions. My personal judgment is that we should not use the pronouns that people want to be um, asked to be used by. That's going to get you kicked out of school and put on lists. And uh, you may have to get kicked out of school, and I may have to get put in jail for, for, for preaching hate speech. And the irony there is this is actually love speech because this is Christ loving us. Uh, when, when, we, when we say someone's gender, we are giving affirmation to the fiction that it's actually true. And, and my, my personal judgment is, is not to do that, but not to be a jerk about it. And to maybe talk in a kind and loving way and maybe, you know, build a relationship and, and maybe in the first times that we, that we meet, I'll just avoid referring in the third person or any pronoun so I, I don't step on that landmine. And then when the relationship's built, you know, there's tactics, different relationships and more. So um, trying to strike a balance there. Very good question. And there's so much more to say. Okay, um, um, earlier we read about the sons of, of God, no? And I thought that there is a, rela- a close relationship between being a son of God and the eternal life. But we re- read that we can lose the status of being a 
Sona hu Gott. Ja, um, in creation, in Genesis 1 und 2, Adam und Eve were created perfect and to live forever. They lost that. But um, a Christian cannot lose his salvation. That's the security we have in Christ. So that was the only people who lost their salvation was Adam and Eve, and then they regained it by faith. Uh, and you know that by how they, uh, the naming, how they name in the text. Good question. Thank you for that clarification. Gary. So in regards to how we should live our lives as lights in the world for Jesus Christ amid all of the different worldviews, um, so with the gospel, it's clear that we shouldn't just be passive and that we have this message and we shouldn't just sit here with it waiting for people to ask us about it. When that happens, we tell them, but also we should actively try to share it with people, making disciples of all nations. In regard to our worldview as being opposed to everything else, um, should we actively uh, express that we are, that we believe that's wrong, or should we be more on the defense and have our post that we'll never, um, we'll never give ground on? And so, if people ask us our opinion about these other worldviews, then we say, "No, this is what I believe." And instead of, or should we be more active and say? You shouldn't do that. You should, you know, you should believe what I believe. So, so in regards to like whether we should go out telling people that this is wrong, I believe what you're doing is wrong, if that makes sense. We're going to see in God assigns, gives authority to four different governments. There's self-government in Christ. And so you and your conscience, and as a follower of Christ, how you live in the world. There's the home, the church, and the state. Four different spheres. So, you, so your question needs a lot of nuance because it's going to depend upon what sphere you're operating in and also... Um, what you, what you what you choose to do as you prayerfully seek the Lord. So so some of us are going to need to stand on a rooftop and with the love of Christ speak the truth in love by by tearing down strongholds. Um, but there's coercion at work, right? So I've been thinking about the vaccines. But, you know, if you're at work, there's a, a rainbow wall and you want to show your affirmation of LGBTQ plus lifestyle. And so you have to take up and go, go write your name on the wall to support it. And then if you don't, there's severe consequences for you at work. You need, and you might lose your job. So you need to think about you and your, and, and in that environment in a relationship with Christ. But then if you have five kids, you need to calculate that judgment also. There, there's so many moving parts that really it's, I, I think what we can't do is make a blanket statement other than saying that some people are going to be called to, to making public proclamation and it's going to look different for different people, but we can't compromise the truth. We can't go against our conscience, 
And we all are responsible in different ways to tear down strongholds and to fight against Satan. And going back to the spheres, the the areas of responsibility in government, you as the head of your household are going to bear responsibility for what comes into your household. Uh, Lord willing, if you guys have children for them and more, and then that's a whole different ballgame where you're now defending your children. So there's, there's just so many layers to that. But, but people, uh, we, we don't capitulate and the gates of hell don't prevail against the church. So, uh, the gospel and the word of Christ is a sword that pierces the uh, division of joints and marrow. So I'm trying to get some nuance in there and not say that everybody must respond the same way. Thank you. It's a good question. We can, I don't think we should make provision for the lie. But we don't make provision for the lie, but what we could end up doing is judging someone thinking that they're making a provision of the lie when we don't have all the details of their circumstances and then cause division within the church. So no provision for the lie, grace for each other to figure out how to do that. So, so Gary, if you were like in a really personal situation, it would be, you talk to Bill and you talk to different people and you talk to the elders and we all pray together to figure out how do you, what do you do in this situation? Yeah, good question. Yeah. With the image of God in every life, because again, that's, this is the, the conversation we have, right? That every life matters. It's out there in the world. We're having it all the time. One of the things we get from scripture is that image of God and the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply it was going to go out and be and, and spread before the fall and that that this amazing that every life in humans is unique and different we all have different dna we all have every life and from creation it was going to be that way so as we argue that every life matters and the world's false distinction between the mother and the child right that every child is unique every one and so that I know that's really helped when I've had to have that conversation to go with the idea of that the image was coming out of the uniqueness of people too and that was always there before the fall yeah yeah you definitely I mean you could argue that, that so there's there's uh, multiple lines of argument that's that's certainly could be one of them it's good uh, Pastor Dave yeah Gary um just I was just wondering if this is a good way to think about being made in the image of God, being uh, made in the image of Adam or under the image of Christ. If all humanity is under one big umbrella, under made in the image of God, underneath that umbrella are two umbrellas, image of Adam, image of Christ. Is that a good way to think about it? Maybe. Let me think about that. That's good. Let me think about that. Mandy. So we're at 8.30, Dave, so you Okay. Uh, so last one, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm happy to, to take more questions if you guys want to stick around. So this one, I'm assuming you're going to answer more later, but in the marriage section when you were talking about how men and women equally hold the image of God, um, how would you reconcile that with um, men imaging, in a way, the headship of Christ and women imaging the submission of the church? 
like and that difference because sometimes that distinction can be considered large by some people yeah good question so we have this gnostic idea um floating around that um bearing the image of god and the roles that god calls us to is not just on the outside Uh, let me say this way gender goes down to the fabric of our being there's biblical masculinity and biblical femininity so uh Men and women are both image bearers of God. And if the image of God is like a light shining through us, through men it gets um, uh, shown in masculine ways, designed by God, and through ladies in feminine ways, designed by God. But undergirding that is that we're both equally the image of God. And so there is biblical masculinity. I said the Gnostic idea because we think that Gender is just a uh, shell, but my spirit is almost gender neutral. Bathroom at Target, and it's it's not. It's our gender goes down to uh, the fabric of our being, and then that also gets into the the roles that God assigns. Is not a result of the fall. It's a gift of creation in Genesis two, and Jesus restores those roles to their goodness. In the gospel. But you will get to that more when we get to marriage. Good question. Okay, let me pray for us. And then I'll take any questions. Uh, if you want to stick around. Father, we thank you. For the gift. Of your word. We thank you that it is simple enough. For uh, children to understand. That you, Jesus, love them. They're sinners. And you died on the cross for them. And as complex to confound um, all the minds of the world because of how amazing you are, Lord. And so we just we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray, Jesus, that you would uh, fortify us with your gospel to go love the lost well, to speak the truth in love, and to put on the full armor of God to withstand against the trickeries and schemes of the devil. Not just for ourselves and for our church, but unbelieving family and friends. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.